Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 34, Pope Militiades. Mm. Not a fan of that name already? We're going to say it so many times. Militiades. <laughs> it just, okay, it sounds like when you get really, like when you're really into cleaning. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I, I see where you're going with that, but yes, um, I... Don't have a good response for that one. This is a long episode. Uh, at the point in the research, this is definitely our longest episode to date. So maybe we should just jump into it. Yeah, just uh, leave me here on my island of hating that name. Well, how about I start off with giving you all of the variations of his name? Mm. Because he could be Militiades or Melchiades or Militiadea. That's like a caterpillar. <laughs> None of those are better. But this is the man we're going to have to deal with for a while, and maybe we'll explain his weird name. So, he was not born in Rome, or even in Italy. Oh, yeah? Is it France or something? No, he is our second African pope. Ooh! This time, we have him thought to be of North African origin, and more specifically, potentially from the Berbers. And the Berbers are an ethnic group that proliferated through most of Africa in the areas that are now Algeria and Mali and Mauritania and Morocco and Tunisia and Libya. So in the imperial view, the Berbers were one of many ethnic groups that made up their provincial holdings of Africa proconsularis, as we've been talking about. And as things kind of diversified, they would have thought of the Berber territory as, like, Numenia or Cyrenaica. And, you know, since we've seen recent turmoil in the churches, North Africa had a very large Christian presence with a lot of influence in decision-making in the church. You know, like Cyprian. If this was an episode where the Pope did nothing for us to talk about, we could have gone down a whole exploration of what Christian Africa looked like in the Roman Empire and the notable figures from that area, aside from the Pope, like St. Augustine. Or But this is not that kind of episode. We have such important things to talk about. Things are about to get really, really gross and change a lot. Gross. All right. Spoiler, there is some very, very disgusting things in this episode that, um, I don't know. I, I wonder if we should preface it with like a little, you can skip ahead if you want, but also it's fantastic. So <laughs> you should listen. <laughs> Regardless of his origin, although there's really no sources that call it into question, we do know that Militiades didn't remain a part of the clergy in North Africa, even if that's where he might have initially entered the church and distinguished himself. Because, well, we know he actually came to Rome. And the Liber Pontificalis goes so far as to clarify for us that he had Roman citizenship. And at this time, you know, if you wanted to be a Roman citizen, you had to be in Rome. We also know that he was part of the Roman clergy by the time of Pope Marcellinus, although the source we know this from is the unreliable Patilianus, who was the Donatist bishop. Yeah, that guy is cranky. Yeah, he wrote about Marcellinus being an apostate and all of that. And by the way, Patilianus is also from North Africa in Algeria, so they might have had more connection than that. This might be why he ends up in Patilianus's reports about giving up the sacred texts and offering incense to the pagan gods. And they have Militiades as one of the four priests who allegedly lapsed with Marcellinus, which so conveniently contained the next, like, four popes, so... Well, if you're going to slander somebody's name, just do it in style and slander everybody at once. Well, he certainly tried. And we've already discounted the idea of this apostasy already in Marcellinus's episode. And there are no sources, even those who say Marcellinus might have actually done it. No one actually beyond that has anything to say that Militiades had anything to do with it. So... This does just tell us one thing, and this is why we're coming back to it, and that's that Militiades was in Rome, and he was participating in the Roman church at the time of Marcellinus, because he would have had to be in order to be mentioned in this story at all. So, 
I mean, they could just be completely wrong. Yeah, they could be entirely wrong, but we have reason to believe that he's in Rome by that time, so he's in the church, because they don't just pluck somebody out of obscurity in Africa to become the next pope. And and, and this is interesting, because how Miltiades becomes pope is also a bit tricky and a little unclear. Our last two popes have been exiled from Rome for not being capable of controlling that unrest by the Christian lapsi in the city. And Maxentius has had enough of pesky Christians being nothing but a problem. And sources kind of differ on what the response was at this point, because some sources say that after he exiled Pope Eusebius, there was a loud and firm suggestion on behalf of Rome as a whole that Maxentius should maybe just boot out all of the bishops and deacons from Rome and forbid them from being present in the city just to be done with the Christians as a whole. Well, I mean, that makes sense. If you are a secular person living in Rome, that probably sounds pretty good right now. Yeah. All of these annoying Christians, these lapsed Christians who are just causing a riot and killing people, maybe maybe just kick them all out. But then there are other sources that say that once he was done with Eusebius, Maxentius personally chose Miltiades to take up the role. You try. And we don't know why, and the sources also say that at the same time that he was chosen by Maxentius, he was working as a lowly priest in Africa, so that whole plucking out of obscurity thing. How the emperor would actually even know about him enough to want to choose him to be the pope is pretty suspect. <laughs> this would be extremely unlikely for reasons that we're going to get into later in the episode, but either way. Miltiades is either elected by the church or he's chosen by the emperor, and it really doesn't matter which, he's made pope after a year-long sede vicante. If the emperor did choose him, he certainly waited a long time to do so. Yeah. Now, before we leap into his papacy and what he's going to be able to do for the church, big things are happening in the empire with our four emperors that have a major, major impact on Miltiades and the church as a whole. So we need to detour and come back to Galerius. Do you remember Galerius? I do. He just, he hates Christians. I think that's his only character trait. It is his only character trait at this point. This is all he lives for is how much he hates Christians. Until he gets struck with an awful, awful, awful wasting disease. Oh no, it's so horrible. Current historians think it might have been some form of, like, gangrene or bowel cancer. Mm. But we have actual descriptions, and they're horrific, so this is the gross part. Oh, I'm going to take so much joy in reading this to you, so. God, weird. <laughs> well, okay, so I have the passage from Lactantius, who is a Christian church historian who wrote a series called On the Deaths of the Persecutors. And uh, we're going to read it in full here because it's quite memorable. And I want you to also pay attention to how much delight the Christian historians are taking in Galerius' suffering. All right. Okay. So this is a long one. Here we go. And now when Galerius was in the 18th year of his reign, God struck him with an incurable plague. A malignant ulcer formed itself low down in his secret parts and spread by degrees. <laughs> oh, you're already laughing. Here it's we go. His secret parts. Yep. yep. <sighs> the physicians attempted to eradicate it, and it healed up the place affected. But the sore, after having been skinned over, broke out again. A vein burst, and the blood flowed in such quantity as to endanger his life. The blood, however, was stopped, although with difficulty. The physicians had to undertake their operations anew, and at length they secretized the wound. In consequence of some new slight motion of his body, Galerius received a hurt, and the blood steamed more abundantly than before. He grew emaciated, pallid and feeble, and the bleeding then staunched. The ulcer became insensible to the remedies applied, and a gangrene seized all the neighboring parts. It diffused itself the wider the more corrupted flesh was cut away, and everything employed as the means of cure served but to aggravate the disease. That's crazy. So the masters of the healing art withdrew. <laughs> you f***. Oh yeah, 
The famous physicians were brought from all quarters, but no human means had any success. Apollo and Asclepius were besought importunity for remedies. Apollo did prescribe, and the distemper augmented, already approaching to its deadly crisis, it had occupied the lower regions of his body. His bowels came out, and his whole seat putrefied. Mm. The luckless physicians, although without hope of overcoming the malady, ceased not to apply fomentations and administer medicines. The humors having been repelled, the distemper attacked his intestines, anti-worms were generated in his body. The stench was so foul as to pervade not only the palace, but even the whole city. Wow! <laughs> and no wonder, for by that time the passages from his bladder and bowels, having been devoured by the worms, became indiscriminate, and his body with intolerable anguish dissolved into one mass of corruption. <sighs> oh, I'm not done yet. No, he's not. Uh. He's already some sort of horrifying goo monster. When we play D&D &D and you're DMing again, this would be a fantastic little throw-in to, as it, like, a monster to fight the mass of corruption Galerius. But I will continue. <laughs> Stung to the stole, he bellowed with the pain, so roars the wounded bull. They applied warm flesh of animals to the chief seat of the disease, that the warmth might draw out those minute worms, and accordingly, when the dressings were removed, there issued forth an innumerable swarm. Nevertheless, the prolific disease had hatched swarms much more abundant to prey upon and consume his intestines. Already, though a complication of distempers, the different parts of his body had lost all their natural form. The superior part was dry, meager, and haggard, and his ghastly-looking skin had settled itself amongst his bones, while the inferior, distended-like bladders rearranged no appearance of joints. Just a blob. He is dying in a furiously disgusting and awful way. It sounded like it might have started with, like, a fistula, and then someone f***ed up bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it got gangrenous, and then there were worms. And then he stunk the whole city up, and he is dying so, so awfully. But he feels that his work is unfinished. Why? Well, he thinks he's got one last act in him. A hurrah? As it were, he can't even move. Well, I mean, this is a man who hates Christians more than anything. So, in April of 311, from Sertica, which is current-day Sophia, Bulgaria, Galerius passes an edict that we have preserved in Eusebius. Among the other things which we have ordained for the public advantage and profit, we formerly wished to restore everything to conformity with the ancient laws and the public discipline of the Romans, and to provide that Christians also, who have forsaken the religion of their ancestors, should return to a good disposition. For in some way such arrogance had seized them, and such stupidity had overtaken them, that they did not follow the ancient institutions which possibly their own ancestors had formerly established, but made for themselves laws according to their own purpose, as each one desired, and observed them, and thus assembled into separate congregations in various places. When we had issued this decree that they should return to the institutions established by the ancients, a great many submitted under danger, but a great many being harassed endured all kinds of death. And since may continue in the same folly, we perceive that they neither offer to the heavenly gods the worship that is due, nor pay regard to the god of the Christians in consideration of our philanthropy and our invariable customs, by which we are wont to extend pardon to all. We have determined that we ought most cheerfully to extend our indulgence in this matter also, that they may again be Christians and may rebuild the conventicles in which they were accustomed to assemble, on condition that nothing be done by them contrary to discipline. In another letter, we shall indicate to the magistrates what they have to observe. Wherefore, on account of this indulgence of ours, they ought to supplicate their God for our safety, and that the people and their own, that the public welfare may be preserved in every place, that they may live securely in their several homes. Okay. Um, clearly, the, uh, toxicness of his body has gotten to his brain, but... Yeah, but do you see what this is? Yeah, he's, I don't, 
and he's he's backing up on his hatred. He is, and he's passing a full on edict of toleration. You know, you know when like part of your brain dies and you become a different person. Mm-hmm. Well, he has now officially ended the Diocletian persecutions, the last persecution before the conversion of the empire. Galerius, the man who initiated everything in the first place, bloody, bloody, violent, violent hatred of Christians, has passed an order to allow them to live openly as Christians, get back their land and belongings, rebuild their places of worship, and legally exist. I know Christians don't believe in, like, karma, but... Mm, right? Goodness. <laughs> This is a man who is dying in the most horrible way, and he is having a a literal come to Jesus moment. <laughs> I mean, this this edict is so so passive aggressive. So it's not like he's not still mad at them because he calls them like stupid and arrogant and like you know denouncing yeah. the the customs of their forefathers. But nevertheless. You know, this is a full change of heart. And aside from deathbed regret, I mean, we don't we don't really know. I mean, it just kind of happens. So the only other explanation that we have besides the deathbed regret is that a couple historians believe that this was a political move to appease the newest star of the Tetrarchy, which is Emperor Constantine and placate him against forming an alliance with Maxentius in Rome against him. I mean, he's dying, so... Yeah, but this is this is just a, an idea that has been presented in an article called The Edict of Galerius Reconsidered by J.R. Nipfing, so... Now, we should briefly note that while this is a widespread end to the persecution, I mean, it's not quite total yet. There's still some Eastern Asiatic provinces who are going to have to deal with persecutions for a while under Maximinius Dia and Licinius for a little while longer. But for now, this is pretty, pretty substantial stuff. This is an edict of toleration. For most of the empire, Christians are now allowed to legally exist. Yeah, fancy. So this Edict of Toleration passed directly precedes Militiades' election. So he is coming into the papacy on a whole new world from his predecessors. Like, this is this is completely shifted the whole game, and he has a lot of work to do. And the very first thing that he does is have Pope Eusebius' body brought back from Sicily for a proper burial. Yeah. That's important. He's been there for like a year now. It's it's time he comes back. And of course, with the shift from persecution to legitimization, Emperor Maxentius began to return church property that had been confiscated during the suppression, and the church had quite a fair bit of land and admin to reorganize and get back into working order. Oh, so. dang, do we get another one of those... And this is what he did during his papacy, was set out districts and make people go places. A little bit, yeah. Except that he designates two deacons to do it for him, Strato and Cassianus, to oversee all of the reclaimed land. However, if those names sound familiar... They do, but I don't remember. It's because the exact same two names show up in St. Augustine's disputation of Petilianus' accusations of Pope Marcellinus, where he says that those records he found from Marcellinus's time show only two deacons of the church verifiably recorded as having apostatized. That's these two. So, <laughs> same names? Coincidence? Mm, we don't know. If it's the coincidence, it's the craziest coincidence. Organization of returned church property under control by someone. So, that's happening. We also have the apostolic succession pushing Liber Pontificalis, ascribing a decree to Militiades, where he expressly prohibits religious fasting for Christians on Thursdays and Sundays. It's your cheat day. Yes, you must have a cheat day, and he wants to make sure you have a cheat day, so he organizes a Rome-wide distribution of consecrated bread, blessed personally by the Pope, to ensure that you ate something that day. So if you don't, um, he's going to know about it, and it's going to make him really upset. Why is the Pope so keen to avoid fasting on these days, you might be thinking? Well, 
these were the days that were observed by the heathens in their holy feasts. Oh. But what heathens might we be talking about? Remember those Manichaeans that we talked about a little bit? Manny and friends. It's Manny and friends. They are creeping into Rome from the east, and they had also suffered under pretty heavy Diocletian persecution. Yeah, they got persecuted first. Yeah, and they were all, like, burned alive persecutions, so the congregation of conflagration had hit them quite hard. But they're, uh, they're reestablishing themselves, which meant that their presence in Rome was growing, and so the decree forbidding certain feast days is thought to have been, like, a direct declaration to set the Christians apart from the practices of Manny and France. Like, let's make sure we're not these people, and if you get mad at them, don't get mad at us again. Because there's no way for them to know at this point that this is the last Christian persecution. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea what's coming. So, now you might be thinking, we might have missed out on something fairly important here. What have we been dealing with for the last couple episodes? Besides persecution. Besides persecution? There's not a lot of Christians. Yeah, but what about the violent riots oh, from all yeah, the lapsi? Oh, yeah, the lapsi. <laughs> the lapsi are just punching things and murdering. They've gotten two popes exiled at this point. So, you know, we were we were at a place where it was all the bonds of peace had been dissolved and bloodshed in the streets. So what is Militiades going to do about this? Do you want to guess? I assume just, like, forgive them and be like, hey, don't do that. Well, that, that would at least be something, because we don't know. We have absolutely no idea. There is no further recording of any division or tumult or violence with the lapsi during his papacy, like, at all. Huh. It's not a problem anymore. Yeah, we don't know if they, like, got over themselves or, like, redirected their focus, or um, we don't know if the church at this point kind of relaxed on the penance required bit a little bit. We don't... It was kind of a long penance. I feel like confession now, it's like, say a Hail Mary and go about your day. Right, so they, we don't know if they kind of said, okay, just do this smaller penance. I mean, it's also possible that when they took Heraclius out of the picture, they just decided, nah, kind of like when Hippolytus died and all of his people just kind of went, ah, let's go back to the church. Or maybe they decided to go to Manny and Friends. They could be part of Manny and Friends. It kind of would have been jiving with a little bit of what they were looking for, so... They definitely didn't go to the Novation schism. Exactly. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. The The Novations are still pointing at them going, look, see? This is why. <laughs> These are bad people. It's really weird. It's, it's actually, like, Militiades' papacy is not a source dry spell. We have a lot to talk about here. And, you know, there's so much huge dramatic shifts happening across the Empire. Like, something is happening, but are they just not writing about the lapsi because they're no longer important? We we have no further comment. So, something happened, maybe? Maybe they're all dead. We We don't know. But when I say dramatic shifts in the Empire, I mean, like, hugely, hugely dramatic shifts are unfolding. And the Christians are going to be deeply and profoundly affected by what's to come. We've gone to the papacy. We've looked at the papacy a little bit. Time to step back out and talk about the emperors again. We are not going to have them melt from the inside. No. <laughs> They're at least dissolving in on one another. Dissolve in on one another also sounds terrible, but I know that that's a figure of speech this time. Yeah, we're, we're being a little less literal. So... Over the past few weeks, I've mentioned Emperor Maxentius in Rome and kind of how his position meant that right away he was beset by civil war. And at this point, this has now come to a full head and Maxentius comes to full out war in October of 312 with his wildly successful emperor rival, Emperor Constantine. Okay. Big name. Big, yeah. big name. So the battle that follows is known as the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And it's one of those moments that change world history. Like, like, it cannot be overstated how important this moment is, especially when it comes to Christianity. And it has its whole own mythos surrounding this event. This is that famous battle where Constantine has a dream 
like a vision the night before the battle. And I'm just going to read you the account from Lactantius, which is the most famous account. So this is on the deaths of the persecutors, chapter 44. How how many more times are you going to talk about lactation? <laughs> Lactantius, not lactation. Yeah, I figured that was going to come up at some point. <laughs> I know you too well. You <laughs> so this is what he says. He says, Constantine was directed in a dream to cause the heavenly sign to be delineated on the shields of his soldiers and so to proceed to battle. He did as he had been commanded. He marked on their shields the letter X with a perpendicular line drawn through it and turned round thus at the top, being the cipher of Christ. Oh, it's that weird P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the, the Cairo. The Jesus P. Yeah, the Jesus P. Having this sign, his troops stood to arms, the enemies advanced, but without their emperor they crossed the bridge. The armies met and fought with the utmost exertions of valor and firmly maintained their ground. In the meantime, a sedition arose at Rome, and Maxentius was reviled as one who had abandoned all concern for the safety of the commonwealth. And suddenly, while he exhibited the Caesarian games on the anniversary of his reign, the people cried with one voice, Constantine cannot be overcome. I guess. We also have Eusebius who wrote on this in his text, The Life of the Blessed Emperor Constantine. So this one's a bit longer, a bit more detailed, but it is considered one of the most important moments of all Christian history. So it is worth a read. And this is what Eusebius, that Cisebius, by the way, not Pope's <laughs> This is what he says about Constantine. He says, Accordingly, he called on him with earnest prayer and supplications that he would reveal to him who he was and stretch forth his right hand to help him in his present difficulties. And while he was thus praying with fervent entreaty, a most marvelous sign appeared to him from heaven, the account of which it might have been hard to believe had it been related by another person. But since the victorious emperor himself long afterwards declared to the writer of this history, when he was honored with his acquaintance of society, and confirmed his statement by an oath, who could hesitate to accredit the relation, especially since the testimony of after time has established its truth? He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun, and bearing the inscription, Conquer by this. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement, and his whole army also which followed him on this expedition, witnessed this miracle. He said, moreover, that he doubted within himself what the import of this apparition could be. And while he continued to ponder and reason on its meeting, night suddenly came on, and then in his sleep, the Christ of God appeared to him with the same sign that he had seen in the heavens, and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens, and use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. At dawn of day he rose, and communicated the marvel to his friends, and then, calling together the workers in gold and precious stones, he sat in the midst of them, and described to them the figure of the sign which they had seen, bidding them represented in gold and precious stones. And this representation I myself have had the opportunity of seeing. Didn't just paint them on, had to do it in real fancy stuff. He's the emperor, he's gotta go fancy. Now it was made in the following manner. A long spear overlaid with gold formed the figure of the cross by means of a transverse bar laid over it. On the top of the hole was fixed a wreath of gold and precious stones, and within this the symbol of the Savior's name, two letters indicating the name of Christ with its initial characters, the letter P being intersected by an X in its center. And these... Letters the emperor was in the habit of wearing on his helmet at a later period. From the crossbar of the spear was suspended a cloth, a royal piece covered with a profuse embroidery of most precious stones, and which, also being richly inlaid, interlaced with gold, presented an indescribable degree of beauty to the beholder. Well, they didn't make that in like two hours, so... They, they did not, no. This banner was of a square form of the upright staff, whose lower section was of great length, bore a golden half-length portrait of the pious emperor and his children on its upper part, beneath the trophy of the cross, and immediately above the embroidered banner. The emperor constantly made use of this sign of salvation as a safeguard against every adverse and hostile power, 
and commanded that others similar to it should be carried at the head of all of his armies. So, yeah, huge moment. Massive, massive moment. Constantine sees the cross in the sky, conquered by this, has a vision to fight under the labarum, which is that standard described there with the Cairo. And that's the symbol of Christ. <laughs> he does. He defeats Maxentius in a battle. And in the retreat of his army, Maxentius falls into the water and drowns under the weight of his own armor. Terrible death. That, yeah. So this is the first time a Christian symbol has ever been on an army standard or gone into battle. And now the Tetrarchy is literally no more. And by 324, Constantine will be the sole emperor of the entire Roman Empire. Now, we have to point out that it's assumed in these sources that Constantine was a Christian before this moment and when all of this went down, but obviously the rest of history disagrees with them on this, despite everything that Constantine is going to do for the Christians in his empire. He will not 100% officially convert or be baptized until he's on his deathbed, so... Wow. Yeah, keep that in mind. So... Obviously, the impact of Constantine on Christianity cannot be overstated in history. We are cresting up on major changes in the format to how our Pope stories are going to go, and we're here now. Like, it's going to start immediately. You know, Maxentius, the exiler of popes, is gone, and a Christian sympathizer is in charge of Rome. And in February of 313, Constantine has his final co-emperor, Licinius, agree to extend Galerius's edict of toleration of Christians into his territory in the east in what would officially become known as the Edict of Milan. Edict of Milan, empire-wide toleration. This has never happened. This is a first. Yeah, usually it's like just the city, but whoever else, you do what you want. So now, like, Christians are okay everywhere, and they're going to be safe. Nice. And I know we've done a lot of quoting in this episode, but this is a huge moment in Christian history, and we will get messages if we don't record the Edict of Milan. To keep the angry tweeters at bay. Yes. And of course, because we couldn't go without one more from lactation for you. <laughs> <laughs> so this is his preserved account of the Edict of Milan. It says, When I, Constantine Augustus, as well as I, Licinius Augustus, fortunately met near Milan, and were considering everything that pertained to public welfare and security, we thought, among other things, which we saw would be for the good of many, those regulations pertaining to the reverence of the divinity ought to certainly be made first, so that we might grant to the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each preferred, whence any divinity whatsoever in the seat of the heavens may be propitious and kindly disposed to all who are placed under our rule. And thus, by this wholesome counsel and most upright provision, we thought to arrange that no one whatsoever should be denied the opportunity to give his heart to the observance of the Christian religion, of that religion which he should think best for himself, so that the supreme deity, to whose worship we freely yield our hearts, may show in all things his usual favor and benevolence. Therefore, your worship should know that it has pleased us to remove all conditions whatsoever which were in the rescripts formerly given to you officially concerning the Christians, and now any one of these who wish to observe the Christian religion may do so freely and openly without molestation. We thought it fit to commend these things fully to your care that you may know that we have given to those Christians free and unrestricted opportunity of religious worship. When you see that this has been granted to them by us, your worship will know that we have also conceded to other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of peace in our time, and that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases, this regulation is made that we may not seem to detract from any dignity or any religion. Cool. Yeah. That's not even the whole thing. That's just the important part. It goes on to be like all property, cemetery, churches restored to the Christians immediately. And it's pretty freaking good. Good news. And then Constantine does one better. <laughs> all right. He gives the Pope a palace. A palace. A full-on palace. And not just any palace, but the Domus Laterani, which is known today as the Lateran Palace. 
and this will be the main papal residence at the heart of Christianity for the next 1,000 years before the Vatican. Nice. Yeah. I mean, at the time, it was given to the Pope. It had been a palace of Empress Fausta, his wife, and it had had, like, army barracks attached to it at this point, but Constantine had kind of destroyed the army barracks in the aftermath of the Civil War and commissioned the construction of a basilica to attach to it instead. That's the opposite of what happened to Caius. It is. And and as far as giving away his wife's palace, by the way, it seems mutual and not a, a weird, aggressive move at this point. She didn't want it. But I mean, he is going to have her executed about 10 years from now in boiling water Ugh. because he thought that she was having an affair with his son, Ugh. who he's he's also going to kill. So Boiling water? Uh, no, see, the boiling water thing is thought to have been maybe an attempt at an abortion. Oh. So, um, yeah, the son didn't need that so much. No. Now, I could say so much about the Lateran Palace. It has such a fascinating history. It has been the home of so many popes, and, and I have been there, and I am not going to because we're going to do a whole episode dedicated to it on Patreon very soon. But it's, it is now the Pope's Palace. And it was given perfectly in time, because in October of the same year that he gets the palace, a situation arises in the church, and the Pope needs to call a synod, and he needs a place to do it from, so this is how we get the first Lateran Council. <laughs> and for clarification's sake, if you go looking for Lateran Council, the, like, quote-unquote first is cited as occurring in 1123, but those are ecumenical councils, which are, like, strictly about doctrine and... Those are going to come in the future. This is more like a synod council dealing with like church affairs on a much smaller organization. So what problem is being had and, and why is a synod needed? Is it Manny and Friends? It is not Manny and Friends, but it is a place we have talked about on a fairly regular basis. Carthage, Gaul, I don't know. Carthage. Carthage is having a schism. Oh. <laughs> the schism surrounded a situation with their newly elected bishop, Salianus, and another bishop called Donatus. So Salianus was the choice of Rome and supported by the Pope, but Donatus had rather a large following on his own. That's the, is that the salty writer guy, or? It, it, his people are the salty writer okay. guys, so yes. But can you guess what these two men are fighting about? No, because there's no lapsi, so what? There's no lapsi, but there's an issue that we've talked about with Carthage. An issue that Cyprian was really upset about. Baptism. There we go. Donatus was a strong believer in the need of re-baptizing people who had been heretics, apostates, or schismatics, especially if they were going to be ordained for an office in the church, like priest or bishop. In Wyatt North's book, A History of the Popes, he suggests that one of the reasons that they reject Sicilianus so much was that maybe he'd been a lapsi. We don't know. And despite the fact that the church has made its official stance on the issue pretty clear by now, Donatus is still somehow managing to get quite a following that's going to serve as a problem in the church for a while. And we have Patilianus, you know, writing salty things about popes when they are dead and cannot defend themselves. Best time to do it. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked. Marcellinus still got massive scores for that, so here's what goes down. Sicilianus is elected and supported by the Pope, and Donatus and his supporters don't like this at all, and they set up their own rival bishop called Majorianus. So they appeal to Emperor Constantine and request that impartial bishops from Gaul should be selected to adjudicate who the real bishop should be here. And Constantine goes, yeah, sure, okay, hey, hey, Pope Militiades, old buddy, old pal, who I just gave a palace to and made your religion legal, um, pick three Gallic bishops and resolve this situation for me, okay? You're a peach. And this is the first time ever that we see an emperor interfering with church affairs. Well, outside of persecution... Yeah, I mean, they've killed popes, they've exiled popes, they've suppressed the religion as a whole, but no emperor before this moment in time has actually intervened within the church, especially one rooted in an issue of sacrament. And considering how things had gone under Maxentius when the pope couldn't keep conflict under control, and the fact that Militiades clearly does not want to turn off the emperor's good graces, 
yeah, he manages to forge a solution that appeals to the desire of the emperor and also ensured that the synod went the way that he thought it should. Instead of just getting these Gallic bishops like the Donatus wants, he turns it into a proper synod and calls it to order from the Lateran Palace from October 2nd to 4th, 315, with the three Gallic bishops requested and 15 bishops from Italy, just to be sure. Just to even it out. Yeah, yeah, just, just, just to be sure. And this synod is very formally arranged to mirror, like, Roman civil courts at the time, and Miltiades enforced a strict rule of conduct where, in order for an argument to be accepted, you had to provide evidence. Such a good concept. And this drove the Donatists absolutely insane, and they ended up actually leaving the council after three sessions without submitting an argument to be heard. Oh. <laughs> yeah. What do we think of their case? Yeah. Yeah. They had no evidence to argue that Sicilianus was a bad choice. I mean, yeah, if they just stormed out. And once they had left, Miltiades ruled that Sicilianus would remain the Bishop of Carthage by default, that his claim was one that had the legitimacy, and also saying that Donatus's teachings for the need of rebaptism were condemned again. However, he did make it clear that while he was condemning Donatus, he didn't really want to condemn his followers, so if any bishops supported him in this argument and wanted to, like, backtrack a little bit, they would be welcome back. They just had to return. No harm, no foul. Just come on back. Just leave him out in the dust. It's all good. The usual. And considering the whole volatile lapsi penance thing, this is, this is quite prudent. You know, he's making a moderate move that he's condemning one person without just excommunicating a bunch of people. And he gets a lot of praise from this, especially from St. Augustine, who we mentioned was North African, so he definitely would have been aware of this conflict and the impact that Miltiades' moderation would have. Unfortunately, the synod condemnation of Donatus would not stop Donatism from breaking away, spreading through North Africa, strongly enough that in the next year, Donatus reappealed to the emperor, who again agrees to hear them out, this time in Gaul for a purely Gallic perspective. And then that, that council also rules against them, so... Oh, I'm sure. They were probably like, why are we here? We already did this. And Miltiades had died by the time of the second council, which is why we don't have any response from him, so... Well, I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> from beyond the grave. Either way, we'll, we'll have more on the Donatists later, so... We'll leave them there. And, and, and go right into Miltiades' death, so... You know, we're there. He died of natural causes on January 10th. I would hope so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is not a time to die of murder. Just a lapsi hiding behind his, uh... Oh, that would be so not okay. <laughs> so he dies on January 10th or 11th of 314, and uh, some of the sources we see coming from the later church will call him a martyr, but like we just said, clearly not. He's buried in the Catacomb of Calixtus, and... Weirdly, again, some sources say he's the last pope to be buried in a catacomb. Just like like a catacomb in general. But, uh, that's not true. You know, they just want to be like, this one's the last. Oh, wait. Nope, this one's the last. But oh, we have wait. popes that are going to be buried in so many catacombs, so it's weird. Maybe they, like, break down new catacombs and go, we can fit more bodies. They probably are doing exactly that. And I mean, we're going to build a whole bunch of new ones still to come. So, you know, unfortunately, his burial site within the catacombs has never officially been like 100% declaratively found by Giovanni de Rossi. Ooh, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's the first one where we haven't actually found a pope. Um, but this is, this is only because de Rossi categorized his, what they think is his specific tomb as the probable burial site. So. We will never know for sure. But that is Miltiades, a long and uh, history-changing story. I mean, a lot of that was just other things happening in his vicinity. Well, and we're going to have moments of this where big things are happening in their vicinity, but how they respond to these things, um, we're going to have to deal with. So let's see, let's set a precedent here and rank him. Papatum. His papacy marks the end of a persecution by Roman emperors. Milestone moment. He doesn't actually play a hand in that. He he doesn't really have anything to do with that so much. However, he is having a role in the North African schism. So this is where he's going to get his point. So 
we have a situation where Carthaginian popes are going over the pope to the emperor, and the emperor is interfering with the matter. That does not look good for papal impact. But he's not rocking the boat. He's he's maintaining a positive relationship with an emperor who's going to change everything for the Christians. So, you know, he's doing the right thing. I think he's playing his relationships very clearly here. He's moderate with the Donatists, so he's not doing that whole lapsi schism thing. He's he's supplicating the em- emperor in a way that's really, really going to benefit Christianity. He's called an excellent pontiff by St. Augustine, and he's not rocking the boat. He's not giving Constantine a reason to doubt his conversion moment. So he's got to get some points here for sure. What do you want to give him? I'm leaning towards like a five. Okay. I think a five is a good score. I was, I'm kind of hovering around a four because I'm going to give him two for the moderation and two for not rocking the boat. Um, I, I can't give him any more because this whole imperial intervention thing in the religion is not going to be good at certain points, but, but it is a thing. And right now it's a good thing. So a nine for Papatomophalium. Yeah. Fructus prohibitum. The only source of scandal we have here is Petilianus, who wants us to think that he apostatized with Marcellinus. He handed a bunch of documents over at some point. Yeah, so that's a no. It's it's a zero from me. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, whatever. Seculari impactum. This might be his round. Uh, the <laughs> the Lateran Palace is no longer a secular building. <laughs> it's a church property. That's a thing. He got all the rest of the church property back. Everybody, he, he's getting everything back. He's, um, everyone who lives in the empire, secular or Christian, now has a legal right to exist. That is some seriously secular impact. So if you are a pagan and you've just been punching Christians for fun, this changes your life. Just don't do that. I mean, the emperor is pressing his authority to intervene in church matters. You know, we've already talked about why this is a dangerous precedent, but... This means that the church is now, wittingly or unwittingly, participating in a relationship with the empire and will be embroiled in imperial politics. So, lasting impact. For me... That is the most secular thing you can do. So, for me, this is like... This is like an 8 or a 9. Yeah, I was leaning towards like a 7.5, but I can't do that, so let's go 8. So, that gives him a 16 for secular I impact him. Fossium Sanctus. Remember Pope Caius? Uh, yeah. Handsome man. So nice. Miletiades is, if everything went wrong with that, so... (laughs) (laughs) We're we're gonna rate this photo first, but I want to say that he has some very distinguishable features that show up in all of these. So, um, let's rate him first. Okay, um... He kind of looks like like if someone punched Screech from Saved by the Bell too many times in the face. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. I mean, I like that he's clearly a young man, and all of the portrayals of him are are fairly young mannish. But dude is not good looking. So I mean, I'm I'm giving him a two, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, a two, a two is good. So when we factor that in, that gives him a one for Facium Sanctus. Now I'm going to send you these other photos, which uh, are. Arguably, they're they're stylized for like a lot of the Eastern Church styles, but they're they're definitely worse. <laughs> He's got the same eyes though, the same eyes and the same nose. This long ass long nose of his nose. <laughs> it's almost a proboscis. How long it is? It's forever. It is a bad nose. It's not a good look. I mean, he just has this extremely long face. With, like, cheeks that just melt into jaw in all of these. like (laughs) The longest face. And then a very short forehead. Like, really long face. Very short forehead. He is just a stretchy man. He's like the moon. I mean, for one thing, we can say that all of these portrayals are very consistent. Yes. But that's not a good thing. What's he holding in his hand there? Uh, It's a a double, that cross. Oh, okay. It's very faint. Oh, no, I see. It goes all the way up now. I can see yeah. it. Yeah. It's it's hard to see on that third one, but if, if he in the second one, he's got the same thing, just in brown. 
Tempus Pontificus. July 2nd, 3.11 to January 10th, 3.14, which is two and a half years. And all he gets for that is a 0.625. If he's such a young man, why did he suddenly die? We don't know. Maybe he got sick. There's no sources that say anything other than martyrdom, and that's that's clearly just not the case. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, got some gout from all that lavish eating? I don't know. It, it could be. It could just be, like, the overwhelming stress of being made Pope in, like, the worst possible time, and then everything just shocks you forever. Yeah. So now it's the best possible time, but your your heart's just not prepared to handle it. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is January 10th, which just passed, unfortunately, so we won't be celebrating his feast day on social media this year. Uh, womp womp. Womp womp. I know. We don't have any patron saints this year for February. We're not going to get to them in time, so. Uh, He is mentioned in the Martyrologium Hieromanium and originally referred to as Melchiades. Mistaken as a Martyr, Feast Removed in 1969 from Obligatory Celebrations, No Longer Called a Martyr, Not a Patron Saint of Anything, but this man, he should be. He really, really should be. He could be the Patron Saint of Sudden, I don't know, like, moving on up. Yeah, yeah, that I was thinking, like, fortune reversals, so... Do we want to invoke him for or against fortune reversals? Um, probably for. Like, if you're in a bad situation, you want to invoke him so everything gets real good. Yeah. But if for some reason you win the lottery, you want to invoke him so that, like, 20,000 people don't come asking you for a million dollars. So he's for and against fortune reversals. All right. Well, he just moved up in importance. Total score is a 26, or sorry, a 27.625. Wow, that's beefy. That is beefy. He actually beat out Marcellinus, um, probably for good reason. He's he's doing things, man. He's doing things. So that leads us to our final question. Is he popey enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Do we have an impression that is lasting enough for a papal bull? I don't want to give it to him. I don't either. I mean, I kind of want to give it to the episode because it has the whole gross, galerious thing. And Constantine, that's pretty cool. This is huge moments. Not Militides so much. Yeah, he's he's kind of, he's there. He's a part of the story, but he is, he's not the main star at this time in history. And while I don't blame him for that, I also can't reward him for that. So it's a no. With that, that brings us to our thank yous. Thank you to uh, Totalis Rankium for all of the support. Rex Factor, of course. And um, thank you to everyone who has joined us on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who is continually downloading us. We had our best, our best download release day today in a while. So, yeah, that's pretty Since cool. Since that double feed with Ryan. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, we, we will probably never hit that again ever so you know with that in mind uh we say thank you and goodbye bye